Um, If you have your Bibles, uh, please open them up uh, to the book of James. Open them up to the book of James. Uh, Today, um, I believe the Lord has laid upon my heart to to end the series on James here in chapter 5. Um, I know we had missed a portion of chapter 2, and I just don't believe that the Lord is calling me to go back and rehash that portion of Scripture, as we've covered some pieces of it already. But today, uh, I believe that this is going to wrap up uh, the service here um, in James chapter 5, and prepare us really for next week uh, to do a communion service, uh, to take and partake in the Lord's Supper next Sunday. And so, church, I want to start off, there's going to come a quote that's going to hit the screen for you, um, and it, it goes this way. It says, I am not alone here. My brothers in the faith are in many neighboring cells. Even within these walls, God is strengthening our faith and inspiring radiant hope in our hearts. Why? Because Christ is unconquerable. This quote was by a man uh, by the name of Georgie Vins. He was a missionary and Baptist preacher in the former Soviet Union in cell number 44. He patiently endured suffering for an eight-year prison sentence in the Soviet Gulag of Siberia. And he was sent there for preaching the gospel and what the Russians called committing crimes against the state for publishing portions of scripture into Russian. That's why he was imprisoned. Georgie Vin's thoughts swirled with concern for his church, for his family, for his health. As one day, while sitting in prison, he was unexpectedly summoned to Moscow. He thought that the time had come where they were going to try him and sentence him yet again. And he thought, what do I do in my circumstances? He said, I could not sleep the night before, and so I prayed a lot. And again, I committed my life into the hands of the Lord. Little did Georgie know that President Jimmy Carter had arranged in a negotiation for his release alongside of four other prisoners from the Soviet Union, and they would be brought to New York City by airplane the following morning. When Georgie arrived here in the United States, he was so excited to find a Bible sitting on the table next to his bed in the hotel room. He mentioned, though, and requested a Russian Bible because he could not read in English. He had been a missionary for so long, he needed a Russian Bible. And so an anonymous New Yorker that was not even staying in the hotel found him a Bible in Russian and brought it to him. The very next day, every local newspaper, every local radio station and TV correspondent arrived, and each prisoner gave statements through an interpreter. And this is what Georgie said. He said, my turn came, and I lifted my Russian Bible high and said, I am the happiest man in the world. I have my own Bible, and no one will ever take it away from me again. In my opinion, Georgie knew what it was like to see the real enduring riches of what we see in Scripture. And today, as we finish our series uh, in James on Roots, I want to discuss how we can become more like Christ and follow the godly example of Georgie Vins in suffering by patiently enduring until the end. Patiently enduring until the end. If you have your Bibles, please look with me at James 
chapter 5 and, and follow along as I read. He says, come now you rich in verse number 1. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another. That's a hard one, wouldn't you agree, church? Do not grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. In verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The power or the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now in this place, Lord, and, and we are here to receive truth that you have from this portion of Scripture, even though it seemed at length, Lord, and there's so many things that we could say, God, I'm asking for you to reveal to us the truth that would penetrate to the deepest corners of our hearts. Lord, help us to see how we can grow by patiently enduring till the end in this place. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen and amen. This morning, I want us to look at three ways in which we grow in patient endurance until the return of Jesus Christ. First, church, the, to patiently endure and be prepared for the return of Christ, we must have a proper perspective for the resources in which God gave. And so the first thing I want you to write down this morning is we must live for perdurable riches for perdurable riches. We must live for perdurable riches. We will not endure to the end if we are investing our lives in a substance that is dissolving. 
God gives strong warning to the rich, and especially the unrighteous rich person here in Scripture. Before church, we sit and we say, yay. God, you go after the evil rich people. Before we have those thoughts in our head, we cannot ignore how this passage may want us to grow and change, even if we are not the quote-unquote rich person. Biblically speaking, money in and of itself is not unbiblical. Amen, church? Money in and of itself. In fact, God's word encourages us to save and prepare for the future as we live examples of wise living. God also tells us in scripture that there will be those who have riches and there will be those who have little. You guys know that, right? Amen? There will be those who have riches. Always there will be those who have riches, materially speaking, and there will be those who have less. And how many dollars this morning that you have or the lack of dollars that you have this morning is irrelevant in your standing before God and making you pleased in his eyes because as we talked back in James chapter 1 verse 5 God is impartial and he gives generously to all without reproach of material possessions that you may have because that is his character it is unchanging it is unshifting but this passage this morning is going to challenge us because it's not just about dollars and cents it's not just about judging based on the outward signs because God knows that even among Christians, the rich, unrighteous person can show up in every single one of us. You know, even if we don't have a ton of material resources, even if we may not be rich, we can still at times be living like the unrighteous, rich person today. You know, the unrighteous, rich person in James describes to be a friend of the world. They embrace at times the anti-God values of the culture, and we all can do that at times, can't we, church? The unrighteous rich person here in the text shows favoritism and judges at face value people that advance their cause and interests, and we do that at times too, church, don't we? The rich, unrighteous person likes to live independently and self-sufficiently like they do not have a need for God. The unrighteous, rich person disadvantages others for their own advantage. Instead of loving your neighbor as yourself, as we are commanded to do. So church, I have a question for you this morning. Do you love yourself at the expense of other people? Do you love yourself at the expense of other people? As we endure well for Christ's return, we must make sure that we are living for enduring riches, the things that are spoken about in Scripture and not material. We must grow in how we view our resources and how we get our resources and even how we use them. You know, God warns us in this life that we must live for enduring riches and not dissolving riches. Your view, my view of our resources has a great impact on how we prepare and we endure well for the return of Christ. Church, you, you may know this already, um, especially those of you who know much about sports, but there is a difference in the way that a sprinter prepares for a race and the way that a distance runner prepares for their race. It's vastly different. 
And I, I realized this morning that you may be sitting up here looking at me and you probably immediately assume and recognize that I've had success in my life as a sports star. Okay, probably not. But I, I do want to tell you a story. I do want to tell you a story so that you don't have to try to find my accolades all over the internet. I had, had some very close personal friends in my life that have been quite successful as distance runners. Um, they, they have run in several marathons and very high-profile races. They've been to Boston. They've been to Chicago. Uh, they've been to Tampa. They've been uh, to, to California. And they've earned all sorts of awards in their long-distance running. In fact, as, as an adult, um, I would admire and gaze at their trophies when our family would be invited over to their homes. And I always wanted, I always want, I played sports and I loved sports, but I never got these really cool awards. And, and I see our children today running in cross country and I was like, I don't know why you run. I don't know. Right, but when I was nine years old, we lived in Indiana. And I went to, I went to Wakarusa Elementary School. And at the age of nine, I was entered into the Wakarusa Outdoor Track and Field Day event as a runner. I was put in and entered into the 800-meter race, meaning I had to lap the track two times as a nine-year-old. And that, that race is different depending on how old you are and how advanced you are in your running. And as a nine-year-old, it was like an endurance race for me. As a nine-year-old kid, however, to an Olympian, it would be like a long sprint. And the first race, I was prepared with thinking about the proper pace so that I could maintain a full 800 meters and be able to leave it all on the track and actually make it to the finish line. And I executed that plan perfectly. I started off the race, and it was going well. And as time went on, I just began to pass person after person after person, and I placed first. I won first place for the first time in my life in some sports uh, event. Now, please hold your applause, though. Because the following year, at the age of 10, I entered the very same race, but in the next category up, and I had to run four laps around that track. 1,600 meters I had to get around that track, and I was determined to win the exact same way that I had done before. And I remember lining up, and there were eight of us running. And I remember lining up at that starting line, and the gun went off, and I took off sprinting as fast as I can. I mean, I was flying by people. The rest of the racers were like way far behind. They were dropping further and further behind me. I saw people's parents and their friends and teachers and coaches, and they were looking at me with this wild look upon their face because of how quick I was running. And I thought to myself, I'm going to destroy my competition. Everything was awesome. I was in first place. And I got around the second lap, and I was in the third lap, and all of a sudden I began to realize that I was running completely out of gas. I slowly started to lose, lose my huge lead and, and one person passed me and then another person passed me and then a third person passed me and by the time I got to the end I was in fourth place 
completely disappointed in myself, completely exhausted, completely embarrassed, what happened? I took the wrong approach to the race. I took the wrong approach to the race. Instead of thinking about the importance of using my energy properly to get to the end in good shape, I was trying to use all of my resources right up front at the beginning, and not once did I consider the finish line and what what it would take to get there. What it would take to get there. You know, a sprinter and a distance runner have totally different approaches to running. Similarly, non-Christians and Christians have totally different mindsets towards their resources and how to prepare for the end of their life. You know, for the rich, unrighteous, it's like they live to the end of this life. And their riches in this life are what endure for them. But James said back in verse number one, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the misery that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, and your gold and silver corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire, because you have laid up treasures in the last day. Church, God is warning us that if we have the wrong view towards the resources that God entrusts and blesses us with here on this earth, it will impact the way that you live your life right here and right now. And God's judgment changes how we view our money. The the money that the rich thought was enduring and stored up was rotten. Their clothes were moth-eaten. Their gold and silver was rusting. It was corroded. They had been hoarding their resources, church, as if they were going to endure forever. The unrighteous person viewed their resources as permanent and lasting, but it was dissolving right before their eyes. Man, in fact, James even says that the destruction of those things would testify against them. It would be the thing that showed that they were not righteous in the eyes of God. And I wonder this morning how many of us are in that place. How many of us hoard our resources, the things that we have been blessed with, and we don't give them to the people who need them. Unfortunately, the thing that shows the wickedness of people is the very thing that will judge them. I'm hoarding the resources here upon this earth. Church, don't value the dissolving dollar more than the enduring riches of Christ's kingdom. I have a question. What are you storing up this morning? What are you storing up? Because Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 6, and the verse is going to hit the screen. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christian in here, church, Friend, this morning, the way that we view the riches of the world and the material blessings of God, we should see them as not enduring. We should see that they are not lasting. We should look at the word of God and demonstrate with our trust and hope that we trust that God's riches will endure forever in this life and into the next. And so the rich, unrighteous person tries to secure their future, and it's not secure at all. 
They guard and they make plans as if their wealth is going to last, but it fades. And instead of leaving a godly legacy to their name, it leaves a witness against them. A witness against them. And the very thing that they thought was worth living for is really worthless and it's destroying them, especially in the day of judgment. To live by faith, church, and endure to the end means that Christians must change their investment strategy. You must change your investment strategy. You must be faithful to the enduring riches of Christ. I think throughout Scripture, oftentimes, about Abraham. He lived by faith for an eternal inheritance that he would have never saw. Never. Not one time. He patiently endured living temporarily in a, as a foreigner in tents for something that he would never, ever see. What about Hebrews? What Hebrews said. He said, Abraham was looking for the city which has foundation, whose architect and builder is God. Well, what about Moses? Moses never even made it into the promised land. He could see it, but he didn't get there. He didn't get there. Why? Because of his unfaithfulness to the word of God. He was unfaithful to the word of God and it destroyed him. But what did, what did Moses do? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the riches of Egypt, he was looking for a reward. Hebrews eleven twenty five and 26. What about... What about the New Testament, though? What about Paul when speaking about Jesus Christ said, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Or what about Peter when he described our promised inheritance in Christ, when he said that our inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, is reserved in heaven for you and I? 1 Peter 1.4. Church, if you and I want to endure till the end, we must view enduring riches and rewards as through the eyes of God. So I have a question this morning. What are we putting all of our efforts towards? Towards people? Towards lost? Towards sharing the gospel? Or storing up for ourselves money and material things that will rot and waste away? Are we putting all of our efforts towards comfort and security here upon this earth? Are we holding things on this earth loosely that doesn't really matter for the temporary, but we're looking at matters of eternal promise? I've had to learn very difficult lessons in the avenue of this very topic and it brought about a question to me that I had to ask myself probably five years ago in ministry. I had let ministry completely consume my life. I missed so many things in, in our children's lives and in my marriage because I was so consumed with doing the work of the Lord. I never ever viewed rest as an act of worship. Never. And someone asked me, am I sacrificing my family and my health and my energy and my time to gain something for myself? Because ultimately, church, if we're sacrificing the very things that we've been entrusted with by God himself for things that will ultimately be stolen or rot or corroded, 
Do we have anything at all? Do we have anything at all? And how we answer those questions says a lot about who we truly are worshiping. And how we answer those questions says a lot about our perspective on earthly wealth. But not only does this matter, church, not only does it matter where our resources come from or how we view them, but really the dishonest, the the, the unrighteous rich person disadvantages others for their own advantage. It's the way that we treat people. So again, this applies to those who have little or lots of material wealth. We can be using other people to get things for our own selfish pleasure. Do we do that, church? And what what especially is wicked is the way that people got their possessions. Look at verse number 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Look at verse number 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The wicked person in the text withheld the workers' wages, meaning they did not pay them for the work that they did. They used their power and their influence to unjustly condemn and put the righteous man to death. They did evil to benefit themselves and disadvantage somebody else. And this applies to us as Christians in so many ways. And I don't want us to miss this because the rich, unrighteous person applies also to the consumer and to the employee as well. When thinking about life in general, employees, do you cheat your employer by not putting in your full hours? Do you? Do you lie on your time card? Do you cheat them on your expense report by not recording things properly as you should? Do you disadvantage someone else in order to gain something for yourself? It doesn't just have to be about material gain, church. Don't miss it. We gain things or resources from others all the time. Do you, do you just do what it takes to get what you want like the righteous rich or the unrighteous rich person? Do you do, do, you do that with your friends and family? Do just enough to get what you want to benefit yourself? What about with your kids? How many times have we failed to keep our end of promises that we made to somebody else? How many times do we get lazy with parenting towards children because we're too exhausted to properly bring them up God's way? How many times have we agreed to be intentional and we found ourselves too busy? How many times have we pushed aside our families? so that we could be more physically and mentally successful in order to gain our own pride and status rather than raising our families up for a life of purpose according to God's glory. What about with your spouse? How many times do you take what your spouse does for granted and then become irritated when they stop serving you the way that you want? How many times have we gotten angry at our spouses when they haven't met our silent expectations? How many times have we put off things that are important to our spouse or our family to get done something else that didn't fit into my timeline? What about with our friends, church? Do we demand attention from our friends but rarely give them our attention? 
Do we find that we're the center of attention in every single conversation that we have? When was the last time we listened and served others without interjecting our own needs or our own situation? The unrighteous rich person only cares about what they gain, not how they obtain the resource, only what they gain. And so everything becomes about accessing what they need and not about doing the right things along the way. We, we grow in patient endurance until the end, not by just having a right view of our resources and choosing the right way we get them, but we must look at how we use them as well in our lives. You know, God owns everything, church. Amen? God owns everything, and at the same time, he entrusts those things to us. And so everything that we have is from him and through him and by him, and all of our resources are to be used to give God glory. We must see our resources or use them to love God and to love other people. But James tells us that the rich, unrighteous man uses his wealth differently. Look at verse number five with me. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. Their lives are for personal pleasure and self-indulgence. And when you receive money, resources, church, is your first thought, how can I use this to please me? Or how does God want me to use this to love him or to love somebody else? Consider Jesus' example that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's going to hit the screen. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Do we remember the words of Jesus himself that said, It is more blessed than it is to give than it is to receive? Now, I want you to come with me for a moment back to the story of Georgie Vince, the guy I kicked off the sermon with. Georgie was arrested for religious activity and was thrown into prison for doing something that was good. He was helping the lives of people. He was arrested for obeying God. He was placed in a cell with a hundred prisoners. A hundred prisoners. And before going to bed the very first night, he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, it used to be so difficult for me to gather people together in order to preach the gospel. But now I have no need to gather them because they are already here. So make me a blessing to them. Make me a blessing to them. You know, as a result, Georgie began to preach to the prisoners every single night. And in this first week in that prison cell, 40 people came to the saving knowledge of grace through the words that he's, 40 people came. Soon they were holding worship services along with the preaching and praying and singing every single night to the point where it angered the guards. And they decided they were going to move Georgie to a new cell with some of the most hardened criminals that Russia had ever seen just to keep him silent. And it happened to be on the day that Georgie was moved, he received a care package from somebody on the outside. It was a precious gift he saw. It was bread and it was sugar. It was clean clothing. It was an invaluable treasure to a malnourished prisoner, something that the average person probably would have guarded and hoarded and enjoyed by their self. 
But as he walked into his new cell with a hundred of the most hardened criminals, he felt each one of them eyeing his bag, and he sat down on the floor, and he said, Men, today I've received a parcel, and maybe there's some needy among you, so please divide everything that I have. And they did. The leader in that prison cell returned the empty bag to Georgie. And as the men in that room enjoyed the spoils of his care package, the leader of the group of criminals asked him this question. He said, man, why did they transfer you here to our cell? What did you do? And Georgie said, well, I was in cell 44 and I taught people how to pray to God. And the authorities didn't like it. And so they sent me here to shut me up. And the leader, who was a hardened criminal and had murdered several people, smiled and said, very good, now you'll teach us to pray to God. Georgie was willing to give up what was very precious to him. And God used a simple gift to lead him to being able to share the gospel with a brand new group of hardened criminals. You know, there are many ways that we've learned that we can continue to grow. But I'm so thankful for a church family who is growing um, in these types of ways right here. I'm so thankful for a church family that's willing to give out of the little at times that they have to see God do amazing and huge things in the lives of other people. Not so that we would live for our ultimate hope here and now because of our material resources, but many people, church, are being affected by the monies that come in each and every week. Do you know right now, we have two missionaries being supported that are reaching people with the gospel in areas of, of the world. Really one right now on the field, one preparing to go to the field to reach people that have been unreached with the gospel. To reach pe people who don't even have hope. People who are, are believing that in this life, that when it's done, it's done, that there's nowhere else to go. And they're being reached with the gospel because we as a church are beginning to see and understand what it means to be a giving church. And that's why we launched our all-in campaign. That's why we, we talked and discussed and prayed and, and sought counsel is so that we could better reach our community here in our church. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to stop until every person in Ionia knows who Jesus Christ is. I don't care if they reject the truth 50 billion times when we give it to them. I'm going to keep doing it. And church, we want you to go on mission with us. That's why we're here. We're called to be disciple makers right here in this place that God has given to us. Listen, there's probably an 85 to 90% chance that the, the bulk of us in this room will never be called to foreign missions in some way. But that doesn't mean we can't see our space as a mission field. Amen, church? God is calling us to use our resources to reach people here in our community. And so we, we can grow in endurance for the return of Christ by living for perdurable riches but I also need us to know that we must cultivate a patient perspective. We must cultivate a patient perspective. This is probably one of the most difficult things, church. Would you agree with me? 
How many of you are always patient? Okay, nobody's hands went up. And if you did, don't lie, we're in church. You know, I've come to realize that for those who are suffering, our attitude matters. Would you agree with me, church? When we're suffering, our attitude matters. James says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. God says what will help us grow in patience is by learning from our farming brothers and sisters so we can cultivate an attitude to be patient like the farmer. We must wait for the joyful fruits that Jesus produces when he comes. Look back at verse number 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, verse 8, be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Like the farmer who waits, being patient about it whose livelihood is invested into the upcoming harvest, he waits with eager expectation for God to move. You know, there is an unpleasantness in waiting. Amen, church? There's an unpleasantness in waiting, but knowing there will soon be precious produce that will be reward from the investment helps us stay focused. Would you agree with me, church? Would you agree? Be patient like the farmer. And just like when the early and late rains come, they bring joyful fruit and produce for the farmer. We can be patient and trust that when Christ comes, when Christ comes, we can expect that he will bring precious and joyful fruit with him as well. Church, Christian, friend, here today. Are you patiently waiting for the coming of Christ? Are you patiently waiting for the coming of Christ? Are you excited about all of the bounty that Christ will produce from every action of faith and every word of life and every generous gift that you gave for his glory? You know, what are some of the joyful fruits that we see in Christ? I can't help but think about Scripture. Listen, to me, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see Christ face to face. I cannot wait to be in His presence. I can't. In fact, I pray now more than ever, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come. I cannot wait for the day when I have a new glorified body and I no longer have to deal with pain and suffering in my earthly body. I can't wait for a day when I get to work and reign with Christ. I can't wait for a day when there are no more tears, when there's no more sickness, when there's no more sorrow. I can't wait until I see people that I miss dearly that have gone on before. I can't wait for that day. And as Christians, church, we should have such an excitement about the coming of God that it is seen in every action that we take. Whether God keeps us here for five months or five more years or 50 years down the road, we should be patiently waiting for the return of Christ. I wonder how often we've become discontent because we've taken our eyes off the most precious gift that we've been given. 
I find my heart is often strengthened and blessed as I hope in the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised a greater reward in heaven. A greater reward in heaven, even more than what we lose here on this earth when we patiently endure. So, even if you are not physically suffering right now, but rather you just suffer from things like exhaustion or loneliness or, or the pressures in life, you can exercise the same patience. The same patience. Patience teaches us to trust God who controls things that we cannot control, like the rain. Church, we, we often become impatient about the things that we cannot control. Our spouses, our children, our relationship status, our workload. And our temptation might be to lash out in anger and manipulate or withdraw, but God is wanting us to grow in producing the fruit of patience in this life. Why? Because love is patient. Do we believe this morning that God is producing precious produce spiritually in our characters as we rely upon him? Do we even believe that this morning? You know, James gives us examples of people from the Old Testament. And one of my favorites, he gives us the example of Elijah who endured suffering patiently by being beaten and ridiculed and and complaining even from people. And some were even killed. Many never even saw the nation of Israel change in the Old Testament. And Moses never saw the promised land. I said that earlier. But they were still counting or counted blessed in the eyes of God and favored by God because they endured patiently until the end and when we think about Job we think about Job who endured the loss of all of his servants and all of his property and all of his animals his own family his health he endured his suffering never cursing God and God comforted him and blessed him with more than what he had lost in the beginning Friends, there's a stadium full of people who have gone before us. There's a stadium full of people who have patiently endured, who set the example for the the Christian of enduring suffering until the end. They finished their race. They received the reward in Christ, and their example should cheer on and encourage us every single day. But how do we patiently endure like those people? How? Because there are some days when, I know it's not just me, there are some days when you feel like you just want it to be over. Amen? There are days when, when you don't know if you can be patient with the next person that comes into your life. You don't know if you can be patient when your spouse walks in the room and says, hey, I need to talk to you. You don't know if you can be patient when your kids come barreling down the stairs, screeching at the top of their lungs, crying because they didn't get their way. But God is saying, church, be be patient. Wrap around the focus on patience as a command not to complain. 
look at patience as a command not to swear and to fly off the handle. Why? Because our speech is connected to our attitude. And when we have to be on guard, it's oftentimes the first place to reveal that we're not being patient is how we respond to whatever's going on in our life. When you and I are suffering, church, one of the first things that we often speak about is another person. Look back at verse number 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The unrighteous man at the beginning of James 5 was causing unjust suffering. And there are many in our church family who have experienced injustice. There are many in our church family who are suffering because of the evil done to them by another, such as sexual or even physical abuse or rejection by your spouse because of intimacy or love or rebellion by a child. But James is warning us right now this morning, do not complain against another brother so that you yourself may not be judged. (laughs) I've come to realize in my short 33 years of life that we are oftentimes not good judges of justice. Would you agree with me? Not only are we powerless to bring about justice, we do not possess the wisdom of God to evaluate everything and make perfectly wise decisions the way that God does. And so God wants our focus this morning not to be on complaining against others, but to be more focused on how we respond to the injustice and how we trust God to use that injustice for good to produce patient endurance that I need and that you need to become more like Christ. You know, our hope and our trust is that the perfect judge, Jesus Christ, is standing right at the door and he will soon justly punish the evildoers. Just like an impatient and angry attitude can lead to complaining, can also lead to swearing and making foolish vows and promises. Look at verse number 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your eyes, let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So not only does living for the enduring riches and having a patient attitude help us to endure till the end, but the third thing I want us to see is that we must pray persistently. We must pray persistently. As we begin to land the plane, I know that we've all found ourselves in different circumstances. Today, we even find ourselves in different circumstances. Times of plenty, times of want. But whatever and wherever you find yourself this morning, prayer is essential. Amen? Church, prayer is essential. Prayer is essential to helping us grow in patient endurance no matter the circumstances. James says, is there anyone among you who is suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Then he is to sing praises. He will get rid of difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean that they go away. In fact, many times prayer is not helping us to remove the circumstance, but helping us get through it. 
That's exactly what prayer does. And God answers Elijah's prayer powerfully to bring drought and rain. But the nation of Israel did not experience the repentance and the change that Elijah hoped for. But he still prayed earnestly and it did have powerful effects. Look at verse number 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Church, Elijah prayed for three and a half years for the same exact situation. We get angry when we pray for 24 hours and nothing happens. He prayed for three and a half years for something to occur. And any, anybody else, as, as we look at the prayer life of the people in the Bible, I can't help but think of all of the times that Paul prayed for believers. Paul prayed for them, assuming that they would still experience suffering and difficult situations. But look, look at how he prayed for the church at Colossae. He said, being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might, so that you will have great endurance and patience. What about how he prayed for the church at Philippi? He said, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what did he say? He said, the peace that passes all understanding will guard what? Your heart and your mind. But how? He said, through Christ Jesus. It will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Church. I want us to remember the example of Georgie Vins in that prison. He was put in prison and instead of complaining about his circumstances, he prayed and preached the gospel. He prayed and preached the gospel and God used that circumstance for 40 people to come to know him personally. So what does it mean to pray in all circumstances? What does that mean? What does that even mean for us? Well, what about when, when you have overwhelming anxiety and you don't know what to do? What about when you feel like you have no purpose in this life? What about how we respond to conflict? What about sexual temptation in this life? What about when we make decisions? What about when we have to walk through grief of some sort? Praying in all situations looks like I'm getting on my knees before God and saying, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go, and I need your truth. I need your peace. I need your love. I need your mercy. I need your grace in my life right now. Church, it's the most hardest thing. The hardest thing that we have to do at times is to humble ourselves before God in the midst of a circumstance that's overwhelming I prayed downstairs this morning with the prayer team that oftentimes we as believers become so short-sighted in the midst of a, of a suffering or a trial and we forget that we serve a God who can move mountains. We forget that we have a God who endured suffering. We forget that we've been given a comforter. Over the last two years of my life, I've come to realize that pr prayer is so powerful, so powerful that it helps us to endure patiently in every single circumstance. 
I've also come to realize that prayer powerfully heals people who are suffering from sickness, but also from sin. We see the powerful effects of prayer from the righteous man, Elijah. And, and God emphasizes the effective prayer of the righteous man availeth much. I don't know about you this morning, church, but if this portion of scripture doesn't encourage you, um, I'd do a heart check this morning. In fact, I, I look at portions of scripture like this and I feel encouraged to, to pray for people. I feel encouraged to um, come alongside people who are lost, people who are hurting, people who are grieving. Church, I don't know about you, but I know when I hear the word of God, why, ha, God wants for our church to be a body of believers who not only hold fast to truth, but we're a body of believers who respond, who respond to that truth. I so totally did not have this planned, but I believe Holy Spirit is prompting me right now for us to pray together as a body of believers. The effective prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much for the glory of God. And in church, we, we need to be a people who are prayerful. We need to be a people who get down on our knees unashamedly saying, God, we don't always know what to do, but we're going to seek your truth because we know that you'll give us wisdom to do it. There are people right here in our body who are hurting. There are marriages that are hurting. There are parents who are upset because of wayward children. There are, there's a family that I love very dearly sitting back here who lost a child over the weekend at the age of 18. There are people here that need our prayer church. And so I'm going to ask you right now to please get out of your seats. And I'm going to ask you to get into groups of three to five people. And I'm going to ask you to begin to pray for one another in this place. To begin to pray for one another right here, right now. And I don't care if we're here for the next hour praying for people. God is, God is calling us to pray. And so Israel, I know I wasn't planning on this, but if you, if you could go up, um, there is, a, um, there is a, um, a thing up there for you to play music. I think it says um, prayer or something like that. Just keep it turned down. You guys can get right out of your seats right now. Don't. Don't wait. 